Hey, good morning, church. I am glad to be together with you this morning. Happy Father's Day to our dads. Uh, glad to have you this morning. Um, I am one of those people that does not get really excited about holidays. And this is one of those holidays that I feel guilty for not being excited about because I feel like this is the one that people like expect me to be into. Like, you have six kids. You must like really love being a dad. I'm like, yeah, I do like love being a dad, but a day to like celebrate it is, is weird to me. So uh, let me take the spotlight off myself and just say uh, dads are super necessary um, and dads are great. So let's, uh, let's be thankful for our dads this morning. Um, but I'm aware that, it, uh, that on a day that we set aside to celebrate something, uh, there can be mixed feelings and mixed emotions with that, that um, although we all have a dad, like that's the thing, one of the things that we have in common, every human that's ever existed has a dad, um, and yet not all of our dads have been the same, and so our stories with our dads are often mixed, or uh, they're just at different, different seasons of redemption, I'll say that. Um, ultimately, God promises to make everything right, but we live in a time before that has, made, has been completed. So just beginning this morning with that acknowledgement on a day that we celebrate and honor fathers, absolutely necessary for guys to be involved in their kids' lives and present and providing and all of those things. Um, but also acknowledging that there's, that there's pain, that there's hurt, um, that our dads are not with us or they're not where we would like for them to be. So as we begin this morning and before we dive into the word, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'd like to pray first, and then I'll invite you as I get to the end, if you'd join me in praying together the disciples' prayer with me. Lord, you are good, and you are great, and... Again, you are worthy to be praised. So we thank you for your design of the world and for your power that can not only imagine it, but bring it into being. Lord, we thank you from the very beginning that you put us into relationships and communities. You founded the first family and made it so that none of us ever uh, navigates life alone. And we're not unaware, God, that sin has marred the way things are supposed to work. So Lord, this morning, this Father's Day, I pray for those who uh, either never knew their father or who knew their father and wish they hadn't. God, for those who were hurt and wounded by their dads. Lord, for, um, for those of us who had good dads, I thank you so much for that. Thank you for the blessing and the ways that you teach us of your, your grace and your, and your um, steadfastness through our fathers. Um, and Lord, just thanks, thanks that when the system, when we don't mess up the system, it works the way you meant for it to do. And Lord, uh, lift up those who are missing their dads this morning too, who you've already taken home. And all of the feelings and things that are associated with that. And for those who want to be fathers and can't be. Um, Lord, for those who are fathers and didn't want to be. God, I thank you that you are present in our mess and you are not afraid to meet us here. And I thank you, most of all, that you have the power and the love and compassion to redeem every component of it. So Lord, wherever we're at this morning, we come to you and we trust you and we pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this morning um, I was communicating with Megan. She says, hey, are we do- what are we doing for Father's Day? Like, are you preaching on a Father's Day message? I was like, no, we're going to preach about anger. And she, <laughs> LOL, like, <laughs> here we go. It's going to be awesome. Um, and one of the functions of how we kind of put things together is we sit down every 12 months, every year we sit down and plan out kind of what the calendar looks like for the next year or so as we're preaching. And so um, sometimes we look at the holidays and we're like, yeah, this would be a great time to be at that holiday. And sometimes we don't. And this is one of those that I'm not sure whether it's a good day to be on anger or not. But here we are, and we're going to go through it together. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 1011. Um, 1,011 in these blue Bibles that are tucked under the chairs in front of you, or you can navigate there uh, in your own Bible. Uh, We're going to be Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 21. And I say pick up because we have been working through Matthew chapter 5 for the last uh, couple of months or so. And this is a section of Jesus' teaching that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, Um, but which Pastor Oren in Lakeland has taken to calling now the Sermon of the Kingdom, where he's laying out what does the kingdom look like and what does it look like for uh, people to follow Jesus with their whole hearts. And this is one of the longest sermons of Jesus that we have uh, on record, that we have recorded, and it probably is indicative that this is the thing that he preached most regularly. So we have the longest one because... As he went around and traveled, he was probably teaching these things over and over and over and over again. So we have them all kind of compiled right here in the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with, as every good sermon starts with, if you want to be happy, then you should consider yourself super poor. Like, okay, great, Jesus, I, I super don't know where you're coming at with that. Um, but that's, that's where he starts. He opens with describing the good life, and it's upside down from how we might anticipate it. And then he goes through and begins to unpack some of these principles. And so as we look at verse 21 together, understand that it hangs together with all of the other things that Jesus is already saying. So I feel a temptation to... Zero in on these verses because these verses actually, like, um, they touch on a lot of threads across the whole of Scripture. So if the Bible is, is kind of telling one story, this, this, this one passage that we're looking at today has a bunch of different threads that run throughout the rest of Scripture. And so I'm, I'm tempted to just, like, camp out here. But I also want you to see that it all is part of one discourse. We have been looking at it over the course of months, but the original people who would have heard Jesus teaching that, he just opened 10 minutes ago. So for us, it's, it's well, it's been months since we talked about the Beatitudes. For them, it was like, okay, this is definitely tied to blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So... And there are times where if we look at verses isolated as though they were fortune cookies, we can begin to really wrestle with issues that God never meant for us to wrestle with because they all like, make sense when you hang them together. So all of that to say, I'm not sure how this is going to land, all right? So we've already prayed, um, but let's do some reading and we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, 
and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So, we'll pause there. Happy Father's Day, <clears throat> again. You have heard that it was said, it's kind of a strange place to start, but let me tie it together with uh, what Pastor Matt shared with us last week as, as he was going through verses 17 through 20. Jesus, Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think that I came to um, get rid of all of the Old Testament. Um, actually, what I came to do was to fulfill it, was to bring it to its fullness. And the reason he said that is because if you look at your paragraph breaks, so, so take a look at your text, verse 21, you have heard that it was said. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Uh, verse 43, you have heard that it was said. So what he's doing is he's going back and saying, you have heard all of these things. You guys grew up in church, you were in Sunday school, and they taught you all of the old stories, and you have heard that it was said this. And so you've begun to, you grasped onto that at kind of an elementary school level and have continued to operate in that level, but you, you, you missed the point of what I was trying to get to. So he's saying, I didn't come to... Uh, get rid of the law. As I go through and I begin to give some clarifying remarks about what the law was meant to do, don't think that I'm coming to destroy the whole thing and throw the whole thing out. That's not what I'm doing. I'm actually pointing to the heart of it and drawing you in deeper and making it even more difficult to actually follow, right? Because you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Great! I didn't kill anybody this week, so far as I'm aware. Uh, like, I did not actually go out and murder somebody, like, get, like violent and, and, and kill somebody. I didn't take anybody's life, so check. I have done that part of the Ten Commandments this week. Everybody, are we on the same page? Okay, cool. All right, cool. All right, just making sure. I don't have, I mean, the cops are on speed dial, but it's okay. I was, I was ready if somebody wanted to make a confession right now, like, we were ready to handle that, but we don't have to do that. We can move on. So... We've, we've checked, we can check that off. I didn't kill anybody this week. Um, and what he's doing is he's quoting from uh, the Ten Commandments. These are things that you're familiar with. You probably, your mom or your grandma has them cross-stitched on your wall somewhere. Um, like we, these are culturally familiar to us. But um, I mean, I'd like to, if it's okay with you, just go a little bit Bible nerd on you. Um, because there are some things about this that I think are really going to help us if we dig in deeper to something that we think we already understand, all right? Can we, can we do that for a minute? So we read together from Exodus chapter 20, which is where God gives us the Ten Commandments. And it, did you notice how that starts, how Exodus chapter 20 starts? And God said and gave these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. 
You shall have no other gods before me. So at the very outset, we have, okay, what is going on? Because I never grew up in Egypt. Like, I don't, I, that's not my story. I don't understand what's happening. But what you've got happening is, is God's in the middle of a story with a specific group of people. And he's saying, look, this is where we've been so far. And so this is what we're going to do next. You were slaves in Egypt, and I delivered you out of Egypt. And now I'm going to set you up as a nation. I'm going to set you up as a country. And so you are a people. And if I'm going to make you a country, then I need to give you uh, a government. I need to give you a governing system under which you can operate and, and negotiate, like a, a, a country without a government is an anarchy. Like, that doesn't work, right? And then what's, what's the other thing? There are kind of three components, three minimum necessary things for a nation to like, be a nation. You got people, you got a government, and you got what? Currency? Currency? Yeah, okay, maybe. You can barter. You don't. You don't need. You don't need money. Hmm. Laws. Laws. Well, that's the government. Yeah. Uh huh. All right. What about a place to live? What about a territory, some kind of a land or something like that? Like, you've got a people and you've got a government. Like, great. Like, but if somebody can come and move you off of the place that you're kind of living together, like you've got to have some kind of a land. So all that to say, he's got a people and he's giving them now a government and he's getting ready to take them into a land to set them up as a nation. But this conversation that's happening on Mount Sinai, um, outside of the land, or they're getting ready to go into it. Anyway, this conversation that's happening is he's giving them a government. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt is the preamble to their constitution. So the foundation of their country is I'm God, I went and got you, and I brought you to myself. That's very different from, from we the people. So I just want us to see that we have a constitution, our constitution is good, I like being an American, but it's not the same as the constitution of the nation of Israel. And so as we look at this, this preamble, there, there are some things that we maybe not necessarily need to just go ahead and import to ourselves, but there are some things that make a lot of sense. He's talking to this specific people who went from being slaves to now they're going to be citizens of a nation. And as God reveals to them, he prepares them to have this conversation. And then he shows up and he goes on this mountain and he lights the mountain on fire and everybody's just kind of standing around and really freaked out by what's going on. And so they hear the voice of God give the Ten Commandments and their first response is, hey Moses, you go talk to him. <laughs> the people left the land of Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea. They had walls of water and, and they come to the mountain and the mountain's on fire and they're like, Oh, and then they hear the voice of God give the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a false uh, a graven image. And they're like, hey, hey Mo, uh, can you do the talking here? Like, I don't, I don't want to be so close to that. There's almost immediately a separation that we make between ourselves and God when God communicates to us. When God begins to speak, we say, I don't know that I need to take it that serious. Like, uh, why, don't you go talk to, why don't you go talk for me? That's an interesting component. There's a very, very quickly, there's distance between God's word and our human practice. So as they made that distance, they then began to say, okay, God said this here, and so we're going to start to add more things to make sure we don't get close to that. We're going to move the line a little bit farther out to make sure that we don't violate it. And so when God gives 600 or some commands in the, in the Torah, in the first five books of the law, um, by the end of the time when Jesus shows up, there are thousands 
of commands that people take as scripture. And you even see it here because he says, you shall not murder, which is what God said. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, which is not specifically what God said. So he's quoting to them the thing that they would quote to him, and he's saying, you're quoting it wrong. But let's take your quote. Let's use your quote. And I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the, to the hell of fire. So, if you have been angry with your brother this week, then the, you're liable. If, like me, you only have a sister, then we can just move on past this, and this is not applicable to us. So I'm going to keep going, but for the rest of you, good luck on figuring out. Which is exactly how the Pharisees would have read the law. They would have said, oh, well, I don't have a brother. Like, I don't have a male sibling, and so I don't actually have to pay attention to what God said. They'd begin to divide things up and be like, yeah, well, the law says that you shouldn't be angry with your brother, and so since I don't have a brother, then I don't have to pay attention to what the law says. I can go do what I want, regardless of how I treat my sister. Like, no, like, that's exactly not the point. Brothers or sisters, if you're angry with them, then you are liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, which would be like the human court. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Not only liable to a human judgment, not only guilty in the court of law, but also guilty in the day of judgment when all, of our, all the books are open and everything about our lives is evaluated. I don't literally have anybody's blood on my hands. I haven't murdered anybody. But the anger that I hold in my heart is identical. Why? <laughs> Why anger? Like why, why is that such a big deal? Like we get angry all the time. We're, we're emotional people. God gets angry, doesn't he? Like how come God gets to be angry, but I don't get to be angry? That doesn't make any sense. Like, like what, is it, what is it about anger that makes me liable to judgment and, and all that kind of stuff? Like that doesn't seem really fair. Like, I think, and this is, I'm not a psychologist. I don't have those kind of degrees. And so there are things that we're going to wade into that are going to be difficult for us. And I'm not going to have all the perfect answers. And I only got another 10 minutes to get us through it. So we'll see, we'll see what we get to. Um, all, like we're going to touch on some things that are going to be more questions than I have answers, which is fine. But I, let me just point to this. Anger is often a sign of our most common idolatry. So God says, I'm the Lord. I'm God. You're not. Well, I mean, he didn't say that, but you should understand. If God says I'm God, then you should understand. Oh, I'm not God. I brought you out of Egypt. You should have no other gods before me. But anger is often the sign of our most common idolatry, which is that I consider myself to be God. And I am often most angry when people have violated my, uh, my statutes and my covenants and my ordinances. The thing, if you want to get my anger roused, then do something that offends me. Because our most common idolatry, idolatry is to pretend that I myself am God of the universe and that no one else ought to cross me. And the things that flare up as anger 
are often the things that are touching at the point where I have put myself at the center of the universe. There are good things to be angry about. That, I mean, God's angry, so not all, God does, or God has expressed anger, and God doesn't sin. So there is a category of anger that is not like outright sin, but this anger against our brother is not that. So then what does our anger say about who we wish to please with our life? Let me take it out of the family for a minute. I'll put you in your car in traffic. What does our anger say about who we wish to please with our life? Let's come out of the car, we'll go to work, okay? What does our anger say about who we wish to please with our life? Oftentimes, my anger indicates that I want me to be happy with my life. And rarely does my anger indicate that I want God to be pleased with how I'm living. But how we apply that, like that's a big question to wrestle through. But I think here's, here's, here's the big idea. If we look at this and we see God, God coming and making peace with people and then giving them these expectations, our big idea is this. God's peace with us short circuits our anger with our brothers. If God, who has every right to be angry at us because we get high and mighty thinking that we know how to run the universe... If God makes peace with us, then God's peace with us short-circuits our anger with our brothers. How can I look at my sister and hold an angry spirit because she's violated my thing when I know that God has made peace with me? Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God's peace with us short circuits our anger with our brothers. So, so imagine this, like uh, did anybody drive across a county line this morning to come to church today? No, I don't think, I think we're all live in town. So for us to come uh, and worship is kind of a normal thing. We do it on a weekly basis for the most part, and we don't really travel very far to do it. For the people that he's speaking to, remember he's on a hillside in Galilee, for them to go and, and make an offering actually was less regular. Um, for the most religious of them would go once a year, maybe three times a year. And they would travel miles and miles and miles to Jerusalem in order to give an offering. So this is, this is more like a holiday, like special event thing. And you'd spend a lot of your life or a component of your life would be raising the animal that you were going to gum and present as a gift. So part of your job is to raise the animal and then you bring the animal and travel with the animal, which I don't know if you've ever traveled with kids, but I can't imagine that traveling with goats is any better. You're going to travel with this goat and take it to Jerusalem, and then you're at the, and you have to wash in order to even get near the temple thing, and then you're going in, so you have to wash again. Like you've got to take like three baths to get into the place where you're going to go in, and then you're going to offer. And if you find that you're at the, the, the altar and you're getting ready to offer your gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, you should just leave. 
Leave the goat and go and have the conversation with your brother and then come back and offer your goat. But I, do, you have any, do you have any idea how much it costs for me to travel here? Like, I spent money. Like, do you know what gas prices are right now? I, I traveled to Jerusalem and then I did all the bathing and all the, all the cleansing and now I'm here to offer and now I got to go home and have a conversation I don't want to have and then I got to do it all again because you can't just walk back in after you walked out. You got to do all the bathing again. To go to these. If you're at the altar trying to make peace with God and you remember that there's this conflict in your life, like it's worth it for you to go and reconcile with your brother before you try to make peace with God. Because God's the one who's making the peace. And God already knows your heart. And he already knows what the heck's going on here. But here, like, okay, that's crazy. Like, I already am uncomfortable with the principle. But it's not just that. It's if you're at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you. It's not just like I'm angry with my brother. Because I do, I try to keep short records. Like, I try to, like, not be angry with people, right? So, so if I, like, have an issue, then I go and I talk to you. If, if you. if I've not had a conversation with you in which I've said, I'm frustrated with you, then I'm probably not frustrated with you, right? Like, I try to keep short accounts. But it's not just that. It's that you're at the altar and you remember that he's mad at you about something. I don't have any control over him. I don't know, like, have you met my sibling? Like, how many of us have ever tried to, like, control the feelings of our brothers or sisters? Like, it never works out. Like, I I, I wish we could have a conversation with Camden. Like, it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Like, that's not what we're... But he's saying, like, the the, the standard is, if you're there and you remember that they're mad at you about something, then stop what you're doing and leave and go and reconcile that to the best of your ability and then come back and do the thing. Interpersonal resolution takes priority over religious ritual. Because the rituals are designed to connect our heart to God. And how many hearts do we have? One. I mean, I haven't done an EKG on you lately, but like, we only have one heart. And if I'm trying to connect my heart to God and my one heart is pumping out toxin toward my brother, then is that really something I want to connect to God with? James, uh, the brother of Jesus, which this is a whole layer of things that I really am not going to get into, but James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, writes that you know, our tongue is, 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 the things that we say are like, are like a, for, a spark in a forest. They can burn down the whole forest. A small thing can burn down the whole forest. And anybody with family conflicts can understand, like uh, hear and understand what's going on there. And, and, and he says, uh, out of your mouth, you praise God and you curse the one who's made in God's image. These things ought not to be so. Can a spring bring forth both fresh water and salt water? If the spring is bringing up salt water, it's all salty. And if we have one heart, and we're trying to connect that heart with God, then we must be reconciled to our brother first. We're quick to forget, at the very beginning of the book, that the very first murder in all of human history, was in the context of worship. Cain and Abel brought offerings, brought worship to God, and based upon their interaction with God, Cain left that interaction and murdered his brother because he worshipped better than him.
as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. There are some conflicts we cannot resolve. But if you've decided that it cannot be resolved before you've gone to try to have the resolution, then maybe we should spend some more time here. Are you mad, bro? Like this, this is the question, right? That this comes that comes to. Are are you mad? Like, what are we angry about? Who are the faces that come to mind as as we're having this conversation? Not just the people that you are angry about, but the people who might be angry at you about something that you could probably fix. The picture shifts from brothers and siblings in verse 25 to lawyers. And it's a lot easier to talk about lawyers than it is about family, common enemy and all that. Uh, Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. So we're in a legal setting now. We're not talking about family. We're talking about the law or we're talking about in a courtroom. And as you're going to court, if you happen to be walking down the same street as the guy who's, who you're going to court with, he says, hey, like, have a conversation. If you, can, if you can resolve the issue before you walk into the courtroom, then do that. Because if you go into the courtroom and you lose the case, then you're responsible to pay the penalty. But if you can make peace before it comes to a point where, the, uh, where the, the law is involved, then you should try. And you know what that often requires? The, the one thing that we don't want, maybe not the one thing, but one of the things that we super don't want, humility. To come to terms with your accuser on the way to courtroom means we have to acknowledge that maybe I don't, know everything. And maybe I can negotiate something. And maybe not every hill of my personal preference is a hill on which I should not only be willing to die, but be willing to kill my brother with a rock on. Now, Jesus has always been the answer to our problems. Um, I am convinced that Jesus was probably there on Mount Sinai the first time all this stuff got written down. So the reason why he can say with authority, you have heard it said this, but I say unto you, um, the reason he can say it is because he was there the first time that it was written. Kind of that, that C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, don't quote the old magic to me, I was there when it was written type deal. We've been reading that with the kids. That's fresh on my mind, I'm sorry. Um, He was probably there. He's always been the answer to our problem. He did not come to to get rid of the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. He came to point out that you have this heart issue, which is actually the problem that God has with you. So how do we... How do, how do we reconcile some of these? Because I can imagine, as we've been going through these, there's a couple of different situations that I can anticipate that we've got questions for. Does this mean, then, that we are never allowed to be angry and that we just kind of have to be welcome mats for everybody in our lives? That if they're mad at us, then we need to go and, like, 
cower to all of their, their desires in order to make peace? Like, is that, is that the picture of what God's saying? Like, what about, what about um, people that have been violent towards me or who have abused me? Like, should I just automatically then invite them back into my life and, and make everything hunky-dory again? So, so hear me, no. <laughs> that's, that's not where he's driving at. Um, there is a time where it's, it's appropriate to go to court. God gives authority to judges in order to be able to execute justice. Like in the best case scenario, the way the government's supposed to work is for our good and for our protection. It doesn't always work that way, I'm aware. But in the best case scenario, that's the way that it was supposed to work. But there's a, uh, a songwriter whom I have immense respect for and he, he writes this, he says, we can't, medicate man to perfection again. We can't legislate peace in our hearts. We can't educate sin from our souls. It's been there from the start. Even if you have your day in court, and even if you see the people that have done wrong to you brought to justice, that does not bring peace into your heart. And so even if all of the legal things that are, everything is made right that went wrong, there is still within us something that we're going to carry into every other relationship. And if we bring that anger into our relationships without being reconciled, like it's going to poison the well for relationships with other people and relationships ultimately with God. And so this is not a statement that like we just have to be whatever, but it, it should be an encouragement that if you don't want to deal with the heart issues of your anger, then that's probably exactly what you need to do. Because that's how Jesus talks. Like I wish, I wish Jesus was less direct, and I wish Jesus didn't like put his finger exactly on what is problem in my life. But like, here he is. Deal with it, Mike. And why does he do that? Because he knows that he has always been the solution to our problem. And he knows that there's no way for us to work through these heart issues unless he redeems us and restores our soul. Unless he, unless he fills our heart with springs of fresh water, then we're just going to be salty forever. So there's a lot of things to be frustrated about. This is a weekend in which people want to acknowledge that um, not everybody's experience of freedom has been the same across our nation's history. And there are people, as we acknowledge Juneteenth, and, and that the slaves did not know that the war had ended until long after the rest of us did. There are people that are still angry and bitter and hostile about that. And for good reason. What was done to them was wrong. And yet the words of Jesus are still going to push them into resolve the anger in your heart. As we consider Father's Day, whether we had good dads or bad dads, whether we are good dads or bad dads, whether we like dads or not, The words of Jesus are going to be the same. He's not saying that what was done to you was right, and he's not giving permission for people to do evil. But he's saying for the evil that was done to you, you must reconcile the anger. 
and trust me with it. There's so many people that have been hurt by the church and are so angry at the church for the way the church hurt them that they're not willing to deal with the fact that they're angry uh, and, they're drive- and they don't realize that their anger is driving them farther away from Jesus. How are we surrendering our anger to Jesus? God's peace with us short circuits our anger with our brothers. In those moments where we're coming up and we're like, ready to fight, like my blood's pumping, like, yeah, 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 yeah. If I can remember for a moment that God has made peace with me when I was yet an enemy with him, it's going to short circuit. Everything that I wanted to do to him is not going not to be fun anymore. It's not fun to beat the snot out of your brother if, if you know your dad is making peace. How are we surrendering our anger to Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord, there's a lot. (laughs) We're complex creatures. And we're talking about emotions. And emotions get tied to a lot of different events. And we don't want to change. So would you give us pure hearts? Would you wash us and cleanse our hands? Would you help us to take every thought captive and surrender our anger to you? For those things that we need to forgive, would you forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors? And for those brothers that we need to run to, those sisters we need to seek out, would you give us grace for the journey? and for those conversations. And Lord, for all that's broken in the world, the injustices that we ought to be upset about, Lord, we fall on you and trust that in the end, you are our only hope for a perfect redemption. So come what may, help us to trust you. in good and peaceful times and in the middle of the storm. It's in your name we pray. Amen.